Exploring your gender and transitioning your gender is not a burden to others. And it's not too much to ask for someone to support you in that, to use your name, to use your pronouns, to respect your identity. Those are just basic human decency things. It's not a huge burden on somebody, even if it is new, even if they might have feelings about it. That does not mean that your identity is a burden because it caused someone else discomfort. Welcome to Let It Out. I'm Katie. This week on the podcast, Ray McDaniel. Ray is a non-binary gender and sex therapist who works with transgender and non-binary questioning folks who might be feeling lost when transitioning their gender identity. Ray is incredible. I loved this conversation so much. They're also the founder of a gender and sex therapy practice in Chicago, which we speak about in this and how much it's grown recently, which is really exciting. They also provide medical and mental health professionals wishing to up-level their knowledge in trans-affirming care. And they have a master's in education and community counseling, and they're just incredible. I really enjoyed not only having this conversation with Ray and getting to know them more, but also in preparation for the conversation, listening to them on other podcasts and reading their work was really a joy. I I just really like them. This conversation covers communication and learning to communicate directly in sex and how doing so impacts communication everywhere. We talk about the lack of sex education and resources in sex education. We talk about how gender really isn't that big of a deal and their work around what they call the gender freedom model, which is really incredible and we speak about at length, approaching gender and gender transition from a place of curiosity and play and expanding possibilities. We talk about naming fear rather than ignoring it. We even get into management and attachment styles a little bit. It's a really wide ranging conversation that's long. So let's get to it as quickly as possible. But thank you again so much for being here. If you're new here, welcome. I'll tell you more about me and my work at the very end. And thank you so much to Ray. I'm really, really happy that we got to have this conversation and I'm even more excited for you to be able to eavesdrop on it now. I am so excited to talk to you and grateful that you're you're on the show. And it has been such a joy to engage with your work while I was preparing for this. And I just really like spending time with you in my ears. Like I like your voice (laughs) and the things that you're saying. And it just, I, I can see it being very well suited to the work that you do. And I just, I really enjoyed preparing for this. So welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I also said this before we got 
we started recording, um, but I listened to your show back in the day. Oh, that means so much to me. And I think, you know, an interesting place to start is you are a therapist, a certified sex therapist and Mm -hmm. a transgender diversity and inclusion specialist. And you run this amazing practice with a team of therapists and you do research-based group therapy. And with all of this, your mission is helping people transition with less suffering and more ease and more agency. And I know that your practice and your work and your, your team increased, and I'm assuming your clients increased during the pandemic. Can you talk about the connection between you know, the, the quiet pause the pandemic gave some people, you know, some people in a privileged situation that they were able to have a bit of a pause, an opportunity to, you know, do some reflecting and how that contributed to that growth? Absolutely. So we did see a ton of growth over the pandemic. So we went from a team of about probably eight or nine to a team of I'm trying to count. Oh, no. I think we're up to 17 or 18. We just hired a couple of people. So I'm trying to update the count in my head. And we opened a big new office building really recently, which is super exciting. But I think you're right. The pandemic created this opportunity for some people to have a pause and really realize what was the most important to them. And I think it also stirred up people's stuff. Now, whatever that stuff is, we're in this really chaotic, uncertain time. We're stuck at home with people we may or may not like, and all of our stuff just kind of gets aired out. And so there has been a big push of people going to therapy. And in particular, at my practice, because we specialize in gender and sex therapy, I've seen a lot of trans and non-binary folks who suddenly had this realization that life was short, that they really did want to make moves when it it came to exploring their gender. And I've seen a lot uh, of influx from people who are excited to explore those things, as well as dealing with the general trauma and malaise of the pandemic itself. And I will say it has not been a moment of pause for any therapist that I know, quite the opposite. Uh, Most of the therapists that I know are doing their very best to stay out of burnout, but it's honestly been a little intense, both for, for me, the therapist that I work with at my practice and outside of the practice. I was thinking about this actually, as I was spending time with your work and this increase and and just you know the work you do in general can be heavy can also be light you know there's a spectrum of of what you'll see i'm sure at your day to day but you know probably a lot more heaviness especially in these last few years with you know like you were saying the malaise so i'm curious with the team of therapists that you have in your practice and yourself how have you been taking care of yourself and you you know you you personally have moved through a lot of change in the last couple of years separately from the pandemic and related to the mm-hmm. pandemic plus the increase in your business and your in your work life and just the like you were saying you know to prevent burnout what are some things that that you're doing to take care of yourself that have been useful and maybe that you've been advising 
some of the therapists that you know? Such a great question. Honestly, I think I'm still figuring it out. The past couple of years really have, really the past two and a half years, have really been a whirlwind of, like you're saying, a lot of stuff in my personal life, which I'm sure we'll get into. The business expanded. It really doubled in size. So I think from a business perspective first, and then I'll get into more personal things, some things that I did that were a lifesaver were number one, hiring an admin team. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, I had one clinical director and one assistant who was helping me out. And now in 2022, I have four full-time admin people. Three of them are also therapists who have a small caseload and then run some of the other aspects of the practice, including a clinical director, an HR director, a community and culture lead, an intake person. I have somebody else who's helping out with billing. I have an office manager now and a virtual assistant. I could not have done the past two years without them. My team is... They're truly my lifesavers and they are so passionate about what they're doing and I could not be more grateful for them. Another thing we've talked about as a business and as a team of therapists is burnout. I mean, we've talked about burnout a lot over the pandemic and how each person takes care of themselves is slightly different, but things as a practice we've done are trying to make sure that people are taking time off. That was a huge one. You know, it's very easy just to to plow through and to never take time off, especially in the middle of a pandemic when there doesn't seem to be much else to do sometimes, but really encouraging our therapists to actually take breaks. And then as an admin team, we're all talking about how we can get less busy in a business that is growing a lot because there's a lot of demands for our time. We're always breaking stuff as we grow and creating new systems that work with our new size. So we're very, very busy, but we've started discussing how can we turn the volume down on urgency and how we react to things in the business. So instead of having a problem and then immediately reacting, we want to pause a little bit more ourselves and ask ourselves, is this truly a priority? Is it something that we really want to address right now? Can this be pushed off so that I'm not working 50 hours a week this week and trying to have a little bit of balance and a lot of boundaries when it comes to when we do our work, when we say, no, I just don't have time for that and how we are creating and designing our work lives. Now, we are not perfect by any means there, and we still have a long way to go, but it's something that as a team, we are all actively talking about and working on. And I think personally, my therapist has been a lifesaver. I've been seeing her for many years, and I've had so many therapists over the years. I always am an advocate of everyone having a therapist. I also, I got a dog. Mm -hmm. So that has been a fun, fluffy, What's your wonderful part of my life. Her name is Gizmo. Mm -hmm. She's a tiny little 10 pound fluff who loves to play. So that has been a, a source of self-care for sure. 
I also take a lot of baths, a lot of really long baths, which is one way that I have regulated my nervous system for a long time in my life. And what else? I've also done my best. Now, in the process of writing a book, this has fallen away a little bit, but I was doing my best for a long time in the pandemic to get up and read a fiction book first thing in the morning while I drink my coffee. Mm. That's something that I used to love to do. And I think grad school kind of ruined me a little bit for reading for fun. And I really want to get back to it. I love getting lost in worlds and reading things that have nothing to do with work or anything productive. Yeah. Oh, those are so good. It's so funny. My really good friend, Serena Wolf, and I co-host a separate podcast about anxiety called Spiraling. Mm-hmm. We always talk about essentially, you know, what I asked you here, coping mechanisms, and we call them management tools, like just to manage anxiety. And she loves baths as well. <laughs> I do too, but she really does. And reading a fiction book with coffee is her number one thing as well. So it, it's oh, amazing. It, it's something that she inspired me to do. And now you're inspiring me to do as well. And I have been, you know, I, I will go. I go to this same coffee shop every morning and I kind of see my friends and I've been sitting in the back reading every morning and and writing a little bit with my coffee. And there's something about that, like caffeine hitting you reading Mm -hmm. before the day starts. That's, that's really special, but I'm also really excited to, to talk about your book, but I want to go back briefly to the team expansion. And, you know, I think this relates to your work because you seem to be someone and your work is very steeped in direct communication. So mm-hmm. I know that's something crucial for management. So as your team expanded, did you learn anything about management that is particularly useful or has helped you that you could share? Oh, goodness. So many things. Um, where do I even start? Being a leader is hard. It's really hard. And I've learned so, so much over the past four years since my business has opened. A lot of really great lessons and some really hard ones. I'm trying to think what maybe the top three might be. One of the things I've found, so it's interesting. I have always been a very direct person and not an exceptionally fluffy one either, which doesn't always, um, how do I put it? It doesn't always fit in to some therapist personalities, which has been an interesting thing to discover because I'm, I don't send a ton of soft, fluffy emails and I am really direct with feedback. And I've learned over time how to hold my natural communication style and to not apologize for that. And in fact, I talk about it in all of the interviews that I do now with anybody who joins our practice in any capacity. But holding that with bringing in a bit more empathy and softness where it matters and wanting people to feel cared for, even while I'm being direct. One of the books that I've read in the past little bit has been Radical Candor. And I love that frame a lot is I want to be direct with care. And that is a communication skill that I've spent a lot of time 
trying to to learn and to grow into. One lesson I've learned really, if this was a good lesson in the past year, is the importance of letting go and trusting your team. I've always been this kind of scrappy entrepreneur type. And I think when you're starting a business, you do everything yourself and it's your baby. And then as you grow, you have to hand off pieces of that to other people. And my whole admin team sat me down a few months ago and we had a mini intervention where they said the most wonderful thing to me, which is, we don't actually need you as much as you think we do. (laughs) And it was so freeing and amazing. I think in that moment, it was just a realization for all of us that we had built a really strong team, that I could trust them, and that by me stepping in at this level of our business, it was actually escalating things beyond what they needed to be escalated to because there is a perception when I step in as a CEO at a practice of our size that it's a a big deal, like a big W big deal. And it isn't always. So that has been one of my favorite lessons of the past year for sure. I think management is like most things, a mirror for life, right? Like letting go is also good in other areas of life yeah. and, and directly communicating. And, you know, something I wrote down that I wanted to talk to you about eventually is being able as a sex therapist, right? Being able to speak up in sex bleeds over in other areas, right? And it does. I think that directness of communication that you are speaking of with your team also will translate to, which seems so opposite, but with a sexual partner and mm-hmm. a romantic relationship and a friendship, you know, you, you mentioned you've always been someone who communicates directly and sometimes not fluffy. If that was a spectrum, I would say I'm the, on the opposite end, you know, <laughs> if anything, like an apologist and afraid to definitely with any sort of sexual experiences and and even in you know some some very close intimate friendships and work relationships and so you know it sounds like some of that is innate to you but where would you start you know helping someone who who wants to be able to communicate more directly in all areas of their life and maybe especially in sex if you want to get into that yeah that's also a great question i would say to start where I start most things, which is in tiny steps and in the safest environment possible. And I think before we go there, the question of, well, what is it that you want is an important one for general communication as well as communication in a sexual or romantic context. Now, many of us have trouble saying or really even knowing what it is that we want especially in sex and relationships, because we aren't often taught how to, how to know those things, how to recognize our body's signs, how to express when we're curious to try something new that might feel a little vulnerable or, or risky. So starting with what you want without apology, I think is a great place to begin. And then from there, Who are the safe people that you already can reasonably assume are going to be supportive of you and going to receive your communication well? And 
what is a tiny direct thing that you could say to them to test it out, to see how it feels in your own body and how you feel once that thing is out of your mouth and how the other person responds. And that is going to build not only your own confidence in yourself to be able to be direct, but also if that person responds well, it's going to build up trust in that relationship so that you can start sharing more and more things that feel really vulnerable or direct. Yeah. I think going back to what we were talking about at the beginning about the the pause in the pandemic, helping people to have the the time and some privacy perhaps to reflect and that contributing to, you know, a growth in, in your practice. And, you know, I think that figuring out what you want to be direct about requires some internal time, like some, some time being direct with yourself essentially. And I guess going back to that with people, you know, wanting to reflect on their gender identity how much do you think is our world being in a place where there's so much terrible legislation and there's so much that we need to change about the way that our society relates to gender and also comparatively i guess to the past with the quiet of people spending time with themselves, do you feel like part of it is also people knowing what's available to us and what's possible by showing stories of transitioning with ease rather than struggle and being able to hear other people talk about their experience? Do you think that also is helping the increase of people wanting to do the work that you help them to do? Yes. I think my answer to all of that is a big yes and. So you're right. There is a ton of anti-trans legislation that has happened or is currently happening right now. In fact, it's a record-breaking number. I believe the number in 2021 was 100 anti-trans bills that were trying to be passed, which is wild to me. And we are also in a cultural moment where there is more visibility for trans and non-binary folks. We're seeing more celebrities who are coming out. There is more general talk about it. It's being represented in TV shows and movies in different ways. And that representation creates some amount of permission. While I'm also holding, there are a ton of systems that are still very, very active that are oppressive to trans people and make it really difficult to thrive as a transgender person while there's this zeitgeist of more visibility and more understanding from the general public around a trans identity. So I think those are two things to hold on to. As far as people coming to me in this particular moment, what I've seen over the pandemic for trans folks is a lot of positivity, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not the case for everybody. And certainly my clients and people I know of are are struggling in the midst of the pandemic with some things related to trans identity and the rest of life. But for a lot of people that I worked with, 
there was a lot more permission for them to play with their gender identity and expression at home. A lot of people were working from home if you had that privilege and they could turn their camera off or they could wear whatever they want to work because they don't have to go into an office. People shaved off their beards. People let their beards grow. People got new haircuts. They tried on new styles. Some people came out to more people that they lived with. That's not always possible for everybody, of course, but some people did. And like I said earlier, there's this feeling that I've seen that life is short. I don't know when it's going to end for me. Why have I been holding back on so many of these parts of my authentic self for so long? And is that worth it anymore? Yeah. I heard you speak about the spectrum of gender identity and how the binary system is built upon or based on biological sex, the entire system of binary mm-hmm. gender on this false assumption that biological sex is binary, but there's so much diversity in biological sex and in gender identity beyond biological sex. Can you talk about that? I love starting off the conversation about gender with biological sex, not because I'm a biological essentialist, but I like to talk about the fact that our biology is not binary either. A lot of people use the examples of intersex children or intersex people, and I will as well. So the number of people who do not squarely fit into the checkboxes of male or female as defined by the doctor when they are born is roughly the amount of people in the world who are redheads. Or put another way, twice the population of Canada. So if we slow down on that statistic for a minute, we have created an entire system of gender that is based on a false dichotomy of sex assigned at birth. We know that biology is much more diverse than that, not only in bodies, so what a baby's genitals look like, what their chromosomal system is like, uh, what their endocrine system or their hormones are like. There's just immense diversity. And those numbers are likely low because most babies are not tested if there isn't something that the doctor sees that is unusual in their, their body's appearance or unusual according to the doctor. So there's a lot of people walking out there who have some diversity in their biological sex that they may not know about. We also know that in hormonal and the endocrine system, so in our hormones, we often think of testosterone as this like very manly hormone. And it's the thing that a lot of cis men think make them men. And the truth is everybody has testosterone in their body And testosterone is impacted by what you do. So testosterone is increased by competition. Testosterone is decreased if you are doing a nurturing behavior of some kind. And there's lots of examples like that. Our chromosomes are also very varied. You know, we we think of XX and XY. And I'm not a geneticist, so I won't go into all the differences, but many people have a lot more letters than that that mean a lot of different things. Yeah, I think that's such a great way to start with that. And 
you have this gender freedom model, which is, you know, my understanding of it is that everyone has an opportunity to look at their gender identity and decide how they want to express it and see how that matches with their their values and and how they want to present themselves authentically. And, you know, starting with what you just shared to think about what you mentioned between that and the legislation, it really helps to put that into perspective of, you know, while it's really great to see it more in celebrity culture and in media, so backwards and and so many other ways and just shows the importance of your work even more. Can you talk about that a bit and your gender freedom model? So I'm really excited about the gender freedom model. It just got published in an academic journal. So we're very excited about that. Thank you so much. Where the gender freedom model came from is in my research on how to work with trans and non-binary folks and how to support them. I was seeing a lot of great information, but the information typically centered around the trans person's suffering. And it was about, okay, well, how do we alleviate the suffering? Which is a very good question. It's an important one. We have to talk about that. But there was very little that I was seeing about, well, what are the strengths of transgender people? How do we get them from a place of centering suffering to having a better experience of gender exploration and transition. And I just wasn't seeing enough out there. And on top of that, as a certified sex therapist, I also saw a ton of people who wanted to address sexual concerns and wanted to address sexual concerns in relation to their gender identity and expression. And that is a huge topic in this population. And I wasn't seeing any models that were incorporating that along with the the coping skills, the management skills, like you say, that I wanted to incorporate. So I asked myself the question, how can we transition with less suffering and more ease, curiosity, joy, and pleasure? And the gender freedom model is my attempt at one answer to that. So it consists of these three main pillars, which are play, pleasure, and possibility. And the play section is all about coping skills or these management skills. It's about how can we develop self-efficacy, even in the face of all of these obstacles that the world throws at us. And it teaches them therapy skills and coaching skills that I've been using for years with my clients. It's also a piece around gender expression and the importance of play when it comes to exploring gender. So we think of gender exploration and gender transition as this big, kind of serious thing that people embark on. And I question that. Why does it need to be so serious? Why do we care so much as a society about somebody exploring their gender? And the answer is, transphobia. So how can we bring in a a playful way of experimenting with your identity and how you want to express that, that feels less anxiety provoking. And it's all around those tiny steps that I mentioned earlier. 
So if I can give a, a client example, um, one tiny step might be, I had a client one time who really wanted to wear this lipstick to work. And this is a story I'm, I'm using with permission from them. Wanted to wear this lipstick to work called Brave, which was so perfect. I loved it. But they were really scared to do it. So we first assessed for safety in that situation. So where they worked was at a, a shopping mall. It was in a fairly progressive area. The place that they worked had explicit LGBTQ anti-discrimination policies that they knew about. So we could reasonably assume that this was going to be a safe place for them to present more feminine and to wear this lipstick, but they were still scared of it. So first I told them to put on the lipstick just when they're driving to work, take a makeup wipe, wipe it off your face when you get there, and then just go on to work and go about your day. And once they felt okay about that, we upped the ante to them wiping off the lipstick in the car, getting to work, which is, you know, a 10 minute ish walk from their parking lot and putting the lipstick back on and, and wearing it during a work day. And once they felt okay about that, then they would walk from the car to work with the lipstick on and wear the lipstick all day. And then our final thing that we did was a challenge to go to Starbucks because it was out of the protection of work, it was in the same shopping center, but they were scared of what people would say or if they would get looked at and they didn't know if they could handle it. But by the time they had worked up using all of these tiny steps, they felt so much more in control of their experience. They had so much more confidence and they had so many more anxiety reduction skills that nobody said anything negative to them, but they did notice one person in Starbucks maybe staring at them a little bit too long. They knew that they could handle that. And now they knew that Starbucks was also a reasonably safe space for them. And then the two other pieces of the gender freedom model are the pleasure piece, which is all about how do we experience pleasure in our bodies, even when our bodies might not feel perfect to us? How can we get into body neutrality where we're able to care for our bodies and experience pleasure in them? even if there are parts that we might want to change later? And how do we create more intimacy in all of our relationships, not just romantic and sexual relationships? And then part three, the creating possibility, is all about the rest of your life. It's about developing your chosen family. It's about how you want to spend your time. It's about your so that. Gender transition itself isn't the point at all. It's transitioning so that you can go on and live your life however you want and do all the things that you're meant to do and be as more of your authentic self. Mm, I love those pillars so much. What you said right there about it not being about thinking about gender all the time, it, I think that's really interesting to the conversation we were having before about you know, I read this New York Times article somewhat recently, and the person in the article was talking about how they don't think about their gender. And whenever they do mention transitioning, and then they get so many messages from people thanking them, and they realize 
how useful it is when they do talk about it. I think it kind of toes that line of like not wanting to feel like someone has to talk about this part of their life because cisgender people don't have to ever talk about it because of, and it's only because of transphobia that we live in a world where people feel like they have to talk about it, but also stories and seeing people's lived experience can be so useful. So anyway, I guess it's not really a question, just something I'm pondering. Yeah. And how much someone wants to disclose is always their choice, of course. And the folks that I've seen really flourish are the people that say, hey, my trans identity is part of me. It's not all of who I am, but it's part of me. And I may not shout it from the rooftops all the time, but I'm also not trying to hide it. And we also know that advocacy within the queer and trans community as a queer and trans person is a source of resilience. There's data and research on that, that it builds confidence, that it builds a self of pride and self-efficacy, and in general, increases happiness to be able to support this community. And... I think sometimes people, especially from marginalized communities, fall into the trap of supporting past their capacity. And that's a thing that I teach and talk about is, yes, let's support, let's advocate. It is very good for you and whoever you're, you're supporting. And let's do it within the capacity that you have and acknowledging the rest of your life where you want to spend energy as well. Yeah. You're so open about your experience and your story. And I know that your identities haven't been been clear from the start, but with these pillars, did this come from your experience? And can you talk a little bit about what your experience in your gender and identities has been? It came from my own experience, plus my experience working with trans and non-binary clients for the past, gosh, I think we're at 10 years now, which is wild to say. And it, it also came from just listening to the transgender community, diving into research to see what was there, not only in trans-specific research, but also other areas of psychology educational research, human-centered design, really all across the board. So it's a mishmash of all of those things. But the pieces that I think I related to in particular, I was very privileged to be able to come out as a, a non-binary person, as a transgender person with a lot of ease and with a lot of joy in most contexts. So I'll say that context does not include my family for the most part. There's a couple of exceptions in there, but it does include the rest of my life, you know, and I recognize all the privilege that comes in saying this, but I was already working at an LGBTQ positive place. I pretty soon or really as I was starting to come out, started this business. So it would have been four four years ago that I started making more changes in my life to move in a, a gender expression, a name, pronouns that felt a little bit more aligned for me. And I already had a great 
partner who is also non-binary. So that was was never an issue or a question. And just in general, it it has felt I like to describe it like a kind of like a stretch in the the morning where it's very gentle and it's been very slow for me. Another way that I describe it is putting on a shoe that is about a size or half a size too small, but it's it was fine for me to walk around in my identity as a, a woman for most of my life. And then it started rubbing a little bit and I started getting blisters and I realized that the gender that I had been assigned of female was just too small for me. It didn't encompass all of who I was. So that also felt like a very, very slow process. And I think what came from that in the gender freedom model is this emphasis on tiny steps and playing and experimenting and not feeling like you need to capital D decide from moment one. And so I, the way that my transition really happened was I started identifying as non-binary and then maybe a year later, I decided that Ray was a, a name that felt like it fit better than my old name. I started using they, them pronouns. And I started doing those things in my small circles of friends, waited till, <laughs> it's funny, when I first changed my name, just as an aside, even my most supportive friends, it was new to them. So their voice kind of went up this octave, almost like a question when they said <laughs> my name. And it was the most awkward thing and I hated it. But as soon as we got past that phase and people got used to it, I expanded my circle a little bit more until I finally changed my name on all my official marketing materials and came out to my clients, many of whom were also in the process of coming out. So that was a really interesting parallel process that we we did. And as far as the sex pieces of the model, I'm a sex therapist. So obviously, I'm bringing that professional expertise. I'm also bringing in the fact that even before I came out as non-binary, many years ago, when I was uh, around 18, I had a pelvic pain disorder. And I was in rural Texas at the time in undergrad. And I didn't have any help. I didn't have any knowledge about what to do. I felt really ashamed. I felt really broken. I didn't have anybody to talk to. And the professionals that I tried to go to, looking back, they were really bad. <laughs> I went to a supposed sex and couples therapist who was just not a good one. And then I went to a gynecologist and ended up having surgery with this gynecologist, but he could never actually explain to me what was wrong and put me in a lot of pain in order to do his assessment, which I now know was completely and totally unnecessary. So I know what it's like to feel like you have a secret, to feel like there is something wrong with you or your body because Maybe you have trauma in your life related to sexuality. Maybe you have really bad gender dysphoria or a pelvic pain condition or just have never been taught how to relax in sex because our sex ed in this country sucks. Yeah. And I 
started hearing clients who were coming to me with these same concerns and same feelings that I recognize from my personal experience. And I knew that I had to include sexuality in this model because it was such a big concern for these folks. And I think another experience that I've had with the possibility pillar is that my gender identity is not the most interesting thing about me. Now, I am a professional trans, if, if you will, but I'm also a whole person. And I don't spend all day long talking about my gender. I don't spend a ton of time even talking about my gender unless it's in these educational contexts, which I'm very, very happy to do. But it, I wanted other people to understand that your life doesn't end with your gender identity and it doesn't end with transition. And that's the whole point is so that you can be your lit up self doing all the cool things in the world that you want to and not have to be under this cloud of exploring gender or transition for the rest of your life. Yeah, I love that. And I know that you're lived experience and how open you are, you know, in the media and with your clients just must and does, you know, for, for me and for everyone create connection. And I think when we're vulnerable, it makes us easier to connect with each other. And have you always been open about sharing your experiences, you know, with not only gender and expression and, and sexuality, but just in general, and, and did you always know that you wanted to help people through, you know, becoming a therapist and also being as as open as you are? Because I know in different therapeutic contexts, you would know much more about it than I would, but that's not necessarily traditional with, with therapists, right? Like they don't share sometimes about themselves. I always really love it when the therapists that I work with are really open with me. It makes me feel connected. That's such a good question. And I've never gotten it before. So thank you for asking that. I'm reflecting on it as you were talking. I do think it has shifted. So when I was an undergrad, I decided that I wanted to be a therapist and specifically wanted to work with the LGBTQ population because I saw my friends from college who were the, the theater kids. I was an honorary theater kid, always in the theater building and nobody people. ever really knew why. Yeah, they're the best. They're fantastic. So they were the only semi-out kids on campus. And I watched them struggle through exploring their sexual orientation, exploring their identities, trying to, to date in this really oppressive environment. It was a very conservative school. And I realized that I, I wanted to help folks with that which maybe should have been a clue that there was something going on in my sexuality as well. And then once I came out to grad school in Chicago, I kind of flung open the closet door and my friends from college were not surprised even a little bit, as happens. But I think for the first little bit as a therapist, I didn't share as much because you're, you're taught to not share that much. And I think that is a good boundary and I think it taught me to be very considered about how sharing myself would help my client or not. So in therapy, I never, and in my coaching work, I never want to make it about me, 
But I do think that sense of connection is important. And I think that people like knowing that I might have some life experiences that are similar to to theirs. So I do, I would disclose to clients here or there a little bit about my life. And now where kind of drawn the line is I'm incredibly open online and I have a public profile at Practical Audacity on Instagram where people can can read all about my stuff, including clients if they want to. But I'm not going to tell all of those stories to my clients, either therapy or coaching clients, because I don't want to make our time about me unless I think it's going to be really relevant to what they're discussing. One thing that was important to me as someone creating a therapy and coaching practice is that our therapy practice does not mince words about what we believe in or our identities. I hire a lot of queer and trans clinicians. Most of them say their identities on their public profiles. People can see that before they, they book. And I think that is a huge connecting factor for people to know that they can walk into the space and not be questioned about their their gender, about their sexual orientation, unless they want to be. You know, our therapists don't need to unnecessarily dive into their gender identity if they're coming in for X problem that has nothing to do with that. So I think that's helpful. And we are also very clear about who our ideal clients are, you know, like a lot of businesses, when everything with George Floyd was going down, we put out a statement about it and minced no words and how we felt. None of us are blank slates. We hold strong values related to equity and justice, and we're not willing to compromise on those. So then we don't tend to get people who hold values that are opposite from that, partly because they read our website and it's a big clue. And secondly, because we don't want them in our practice because it contributes to other clients who may be in the waiting room not feeling safe. If someone is, for example, wearing a Make America Great Again hat, that's not going to be a great fit for our lobby. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. And it also is so important. You know, I've heard you talk about how there's a high rate of suicide and mental health concerns in this population. And a lot of the research shows that it comes from people feeling unsafe to express themselves. Mm -hmm. And if someone doesn't feel safe to express themselves in the place they're going to learn how to feel safe to express themselves and, and deepen their, you know, they, they should be able to feel safe at a space like that, right? Coming in for exactly. therapy and, and and coaching. So I really love hearing that. And, you know, that for the, you know, people in my life on any part of the gender spectrum and just everyone in general, I want every space to feel like that ideally if, we're re- if yeah. I'm really wishing. <laughs> 
This week's episode is brought to you by GoodRx. So checking GoodRx to help find the best price on your prescription medications is really useful. I used to just visit one pharmacy not knowing at all that prescription prices can vary between pharmacies by as much as $100. Isn't that wild? Turns out I was paying way too much and now I use GoodRx and I instantly find discounts and compare prices to pharmacies and it's really, really easy to use. Even if you, like me, have insurance, you can still use GoodRx because it can often beat your copay. You can use their site or they have an app, which is very handy, that you can download for free. GoodRx is free, actually, and it's easy to use, and you could instantly save up to 80%. Plus, it's accepted at over 70,000 pharmacies nationwide, like CVS with the long receipts, Kroger, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, and many, many more. To be honest with you, I genuinely had no idea that prices vary with prescriptions. I just was going for it and getting whatever the first price was. And now I know that I can actually save a lot of money due to GoodRx. So for simple, smart savings on your prescriptions, check GoodRx. Go to goodrx.com slash let it out. That's goodrx.com slash let it out. Goodrx.com slash let it out. GoodRx is not insurance, but it can be used instead of insurance. In 2021, GoodRx users saved an average of 79% on retail prescription prices. Thank you so much, GoodRx. One thing that you mentioned, you know, talking about your trajectory is the typical narrative says that you have to hate your body or have very intense gender dysphoria. And you didn't have that when you moved into your non-binary identity. And I really love the other piece that you've mentioned related to that about how this just doesn't have to be a big deal, you know? And you really helped me to understand in my mind why it can feel like a big deal. I'll speak for myself as a cis-identifying person. I realize it's our internalized transphobia or our transphobia that is in our society. How can people on all parts of the gender spectrum, maybe speaking to, to cis people more specifically, because they might not have as much experience with this, right? Unfortunately, or have their circles to expand to have people on, you know, all areas of the spectrum in their lives. How can we make it less of a less weight, right? Like bring less weight to it and be able to have conversations about it that, you know, really sit with these pillars in in your work. My friend Lucy Fielding wrote this book called Trans Sex. It's for mainly sex therapists, therapists working with trans people. But in it, she talks about this concept of ethical curiosity, which I think is really relevant here. So I think starting without the assumption that 
everybody has has suffered or, or hates their body or wants to to change their body is a good place to start. Using someone's correct name and pronouns that they tell you, that is an excellent place to start. It's very simple and it is a huge impact. And if you want to have conversations about their experience, about their gender identity, starting with some open-ended questions and more positive-leaning questions goes a long way. So things like, hey, you don't have to share if you don't want to, but I'd love to hear about your gender journey if you want to share. That's going to give you some information about what their experience has been like. And then questions like, what has been the most positive surprise of your gender journey? Or what have you discovered about yourself that is exciting to you? When or are there times that you feel amazing in your skin? What brings you joy? What are you excited about? Are you thinking about any other changes related to your gender? Now, that's an important one that they can opt out of. And like I said, not every trans person hates their body, wants to change their body. So they might not be interested at all in things like hormone replacement therapy or any sort of surgeries, but they might. And depending on your relationship, that might be something they want to talk about. I think those are excellent places to start. Thank you so much for that that language. I really appreciate that. Hey, you're very welcome. Yeah. And I think just talking about body image too with with people of all genders, I find that something that is really unifying, right? Of like we all, no matter where we fall on the gender spectrum, have had, you know, moments of feeling good in our skin, moments of feeling mm-hmm. not so good in our skin. And it's something that finding a, a place that we can relate, I think is another way to to talk about that. And I just I really love those questions. So thank you. Absolutely. And one of the things that I say in the my upcoming book, and I talk about a lot, is that cis people, I think they would get a lot out of talking about gender as well. Yeah. You know, a lot of cis people, they kind of foreclose on their gender when they're around three or four years old, which is fine and, and typical. But then a lot of people don't really think about it after that. And society from even before you were born puts all of these gendered expectations and gender norms on you. And if you've never had a chance to even think about, well, is this how I want to present in the world? Um, Does this feel like it's the the most authentic way for, for me to show up in the world? And maybe the answer is yes. I was talking to a cisgender friend of mine who was actually an, an editor for me. And she said, I, I made her think about it. And her answer was, no, I'm a cisgender woman. And I love that. And what she did after that was go buy more frilly clothes because she realized she actually liked a presentation that was even more feminine than the one she had been having. So I think the answers are so varied, but the question is a good one for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I, I was doing the same thing as as your friend you were just mentioning yesterday. I, I was kind of thinking about it too, because 
I will say, you know, it is a frustration that I, the way that we handle gender, you know, I think there was so much uh, before people are born, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole, uh, I think there was a lot about that a couple of years ago, but just, you know, it, it can, it can really bother me when, when people are talking about gender and I'm trying to be really aware of not using such gendered terms. And I think feeling that your gender, feeling frustration that we didn't necessarily, like you were saying about sex education as a cis female person, I feel like I have such little sex education, much less like any other populations, especially that we're discussing here. Like there's so much that we have to still learn and teach ourselves and didn't know before other generations didn't know. And so I think there, there is a bit of frustration there where information wasn't available or wasn't safe. And, mm-hmm. you know, just really, this shows the importance of your work. And with that, congratulations on your book. Thank you. It's tentatively called Gender Magic. Can I, can I say that? Yeah, you can. And the core idea is that gender exploration and transition should be celebrated individually and systematically for transgender, non-binary, and cis people. Like you were saying, it comes out in 2023, which feels so far away. I know it does. Uh, I really want to read it. But in the meantime, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Absolutely. So I started this journey, I think I was officially signed in October of last year. So I'm in the process of writing it right now, which is exciting and a a total dream come true and so much work. Who knew? Um, But the, the book itself, like you said, is tentatively titled Gender Magic. And it's all about introducing everybody, transgender and cis people, to this idea that we can and should celebrate gender exploration and transition individually as well as systemically. Now, this book mainly focuses on the individual aspects while still naming all the systems that we need to work on and creating some awareness about that. I really wanted to take the work that I was doing in from the gender freedom model and the coaching group that I was running uh, called Gender Fuck and turn that into more accessible information. So the book is structured very similarly to the gender freedom model and it goes through the nine modules with a, a couple extra chapters in there, walking people through how I work with people and how to implement on that model. So it focuses a lot in the beginning on mindset shifts and not in this love and light, rose-colored glasses kind of way, but in a, hey, we are in an oppressive system that is largely transphobic. And how do we acknowledge that and move to this place where we can resist those messages personally and that they don't get to decide our own self-worth or what we do with our lives? It walks people through steps for doing the tiny steps, like I I mentioned earlier. How can you discover more about what do you want? How can you design some steps 
that are not going to feel like so much of a leap for you that you get overwhelmed or flooded, but so that each step is within your capacity and you're feeling as supported as possible every single step of the way. It does a lot of work to basically say that gender exploration and transition are not that big of a deal. And we can approach them from a place of curiosity and play and expanding possibilities, not only for trans and non-binary folks, but for everybody. And my hope is that the book is going to fundamentally shift the narrative from one that centers on gender transition as a place of pain and suffering and self-doubt to one where collectively we're having a conversation about what are all the amazing things that come when we have more people who are walking around in the world as their most authentic self. Because I don't know about you, but those people, they're the ones who go on and change the world or simply are just able to show up for their families in the way that they want to. I think that's magical. And that's what I want for all of us. Yes. I'm so excited to read it. I'm so excited to write it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How far are you in, in the process now? I am in chapter four. So I have one more chapter to go in the play module. I'm curious what the process has brought up in you and writing it. Are you sharing a lot of your story in it as well? Yeah, I will be sharing some of my story in it. I talk about my upbringing and my childhood in ways that I haven't talked about before, which is pretty vulnerable. I also feel okay. I've been working up to that for a long time. But it it's this interesting process internally of... I know that my stuff works because I've seen the results. And I know that the gender freedom model is powerful because I've seen people take it and use it in their lives and come back and tell me how powerful it was. And I think there's this little voice in the back of my head where that imposter syndrome is still there, where I still have to address the thoughts that come up of, oh, well, I don't have anything new to say, or people aren't going to like this book. All those things come up. And I think a lot of that is, this is in my top three biggest life dreams. And it's happening. It is literally happening right now. And that is so exciting and so terrifying because my brain is saying, what if it doesn't work? What if you don't write a good book? that sells a lot of copies. And I just had to make peace with, I'm going to write the best book that I possibly can, and I'm going to release the result. And I think I have to remind myself of that almost any time I sit down to, to write and to focus on my readers and the people that this book is going to help and take my own advice and stay out of my head and one tiny step at a time. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's going to be great. And think of my voice whenever that, that comes up. I'm I'll perfect hype person. I uh, so appreciate that. I need <laughs> hype people. Me too. I think we all do. Well, yeah. the, the book sounds like a, a hype um, book of sorts, but you know, you mentioned it being 
your work in the book is is about being as supportive as possible to people. And with what everything we've been talking about, if someone listening to this is, you know, feeling like it opens something up for them or they're feeling some curiosity about their own identity or expression, what would you say to them? I would say stay with that curiosity and follow it. That curiosity is coming up for a reason and it's worth paying attention to. And if you're curious about the things that Katie and I have been talking about today, there's a ton of resources out there and you can take one tiny step today towards something that you're curious about. It doesn't have to be giant, but maybe even talking with a friend about this podcast and what you're curious about because of this podcast can open up something new in you. And if you don't have that trusted person where you are geographically, there are a ton of online spaces where there are lots of supportive people who would be happy to talk to you about what you're curious about exploring in your life. One thing I always give a caveat on and that I talk about a lot with my clients is the fact that exploring your gender and transitioning your gender is not a burden to others. And it's not too much to ask for someone to support you in that, to use your name, to use your pronouns, to respect your identity. Those are just basic human decency things. It's not a huge burden on somebody, even if it is new, even if they might have feelings about it. That does not mean that your identity is a burden because it caused someone else discomfort. I love that so much. To that point, what would you say to to those people, you know, that someone is maybe worried that they're that they are burdening that they're that they're not to someone wanting to be supportive to a friend while they're in process, someone who's more close to it or, or going through it presently? How do you have any, you know, bits of advice to be more supportive and provide more love and while in that process. Yeah. I keep repeating this, but because it is the simplest and also a big way to be supportive, which is simply using someone's name and pronouns and referring to them by their gender identity. So watching ma'ams or misses, all of those types of, of things. Beyond that, you talked about the high suicide rate in this population, which is absolutely true. It's also true that the biggest mitigator of that is support. And specifically, family support is a big one, though a lot of trans people don't have that. So their chosen family becomes that support system and those roots for them. So asking someone in your life, how would you like to be supported in this? It can be as simple as that. And maybe they want you to help out with correcting other people if other people are using a wrong name and pronoun. That's always something to ask about. Some trans folks might not like that, but standing up for somebody is a big thing if that's a way they, they want to be supported. 
being a person they can text or call if they have a bad day and saying that explicitly to them. Like, hey, if you had a day where the grocery store clerk misgendered you and you got stared at at the bus stop in a way that creeped you out, shoot me a text and I'll just listen to what's going on for you. And I think the questions that I said earlier are also relevant here. What's your gender journey like right now? What's going on for you? What are you curious about? What makes you happy? What are you learning about yourself? What feels hard right now? Yeah, those are really great and helpful. One last thing around this topic, and I, I want to ask you a few rapid fire questions, but what about, is this something you experience of people feeling frustration that they didn't feel like they could express themselves fully and their gender identity and in general until a certain point, right? Like they get there at a certain age and, you know, they didn't come out as non-binary, for example, when they were a child, for instance, because that wasn't safe or even coming out in their sexual orientation or whatever it might be. And just feeling that that frustration of, you know, being in their 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever it is, not spending part of their life not existing as themselves, not because it took them time to come to that understanding that that's where they were, but because just because of society and just because of it not feeling safe. Is there anything that you could say to them or, or to that frustration? There is a lot of ambiguous loss in this population and grief, and a lot of it isn't named. So one of the things that I do and I talk about is sitting in this sense of, of loss and grief that does come up when folks reflect over how unfair it is that we live in a society that is transphobic, that puts up a lot of barriers to people discovering and transitioning their gender, that we live in a society where violence is a very real danger for a lot of trans folks, and it doesn't feel safe for them to come out, whether that's in the, the U.S. or elsewhere. There's sometimes some resistance to thinking about this ambiguous loss and pressure, as we do, to, to move out of feeling sad and feeling grief quicker. And a lot of my work has been slowing people down to say, no, like this is a feeling that deserves some space because you're, you're grieving a childhood. You're grieving a life that you didn't get to live. You're grieving the fact that there are so many barriers that make this hard. You might even be grieving the ambiguous loss of family members who are still alive and well, but not supportive of you. And whether or not you have contact with them, there is a level of relationship that, that changes if you're not feeling supported in who you are. So yeah, a lot of my work is being like, yep, let's sit in that and let's feel it. And that is really hard. And also like that younger part of you that is sad needs some space too. Yeah. I want to ask you something about that, if it's okay. Mm -hmm. Did you feel some 
frustration in that with, you know, how you grew up that you weren't able to, and then, you know, seeing children now being able to grow up with freedom that, that you didn't have because of the family that you existed in? I absolutely do. You know, I grew up in a very, very conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical missionary family. So as you can imagine, there was a lot there that didn't feel safe. And I think kept me from even considering my queerness or my transness at the time, because it was so far out of the realm of possibility for me. And then going through all of college and not being out and then coming up to Chicago where I felt for the first time that I could be more free. It was such a breath of fresh air. And yeah, I still mourn and have sadness over the fact that there's this huge portion of my life that I'll never get back. That wasn't all bad by any means, but I didn't have the resources, the education, the support that I needed to be really authentically me. And I'm curious about what would have changed if I was at a, a younger age, what sort of different choices I, I might have made or who even I would be if I had the support that I needed as a, a child, a teenager, and even as an adult. So yeah, that's something I talk about with my therapist as well. Yeah, I, I feel emotional about that you know, with, with people hearing your story and, and people that I love and even in a, a completely different context, I think many of us as people have, you know, I'll have moments of, God, I wish I knew that when I was younger, looking at, mm -hmm. you know, children now who I'm close with, who, you know, have this understanding that wasn't possible when I was younger. And I'm so happy that they have it, but there is that sense of grief and, and loss that I guess maybe every generation has in some way. But yeah, there, there's definitely a grief there. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, it's a broader topic than just trans and non-binary folks. I think yeah. so, so many of us grieve the lives we could have had if we had had the education, resources, and support that, that we needed if certain information was available now that wasn't back then and even yeah. grieving relationships that are no longer possible or possible at the level that we want them to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think especially, you know, going back to sex education in our country, lack thereof, I guess, across the entirety of the spectrum I think about that and 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 I think about even just things that I would have added so much value to my life and here you know I think my eating disorder is a good example in my in my life of thinking of like god so much time was lost with that and I think mm -hmm. in how you described like well I learned a lot and here we are I think that's a that's a useful mental shift to move towards because I think dwelling in something, you know, you have to, I think of the serenity prayer here, you know, accepting what you, you cannot change, you can't go back in time, right? And focusing on what's in front of us and what's still ahead, 
but allowing the grief to be there in, in, in these areas. Absolutely. Okay. This is, this is quite a pivot, um, but a little bit lighter. Um, I'm going to ask <laughs> you a couple rapid fire questions just as we wrap okay. up. What's the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Ooh, I ate this really delicious pulled pork sandwich with homemade chips and awesome Brussels sprouts last night from this little local place that I haven't eaten in a long time. And that was delightful. That sounds incredible. And like warming and it was great for the winter. What's your greatest lesson on creativity? Write the shitty first draft. Mm. Like everybody says that. And I have learned what it means in a new way as I try to to write this book and stay out of my head of just being okay with getting stuff out of my head and onto a blank page and not worrying about it too much. You can make it better later, but you can't really work with a, just a white page. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's like such a good one. Greatest lesson on friendship. Invest in it. My friends are my chosen family. I have several people in my life that I consider my people. And those are some of the greatest gifts of my life. And I, I wouldn't trade them for anything. And I wouldn't have gotten there if I hadn't invested time and energy and love into those relationships. Mm, yeah. What about on romantic relationships? Greatest lesson there. Mm, good one. Um, I'm chewing on it. This may or may not be universal, but definitely for me, it was learning more about my attachment style and how that shows up in relationships. And when my attachment style is triggered, how I behave, gaining more of an understanding of that and working on it actively has been something that has really shifted so many of my relationships. Another thing would be to talk about sex. So many people in relationships just don't talk about it. And there's so much richness there. And it makes things so much better we can, when we can actually talk about sex. I'm so glad you brought that up. I read this New York Times article where you were quoted and they quote you talking about having people articulate feelings when they're scared, essentially. And you, mm -hmm. I wrote down this quote that you said, and you said, saying, I want to ask you something, but I'm nervous you'll think or do or feel can turn the volume down on fear quite a bit by naming it instead of trying to ignore it. And I really, really loved that. And I just... I, I thought it was so so useful to your point of talking about sex in a in a conversation formula that helps communicate desires and boundaries in sex. And I, I think that's so important. And I I just really appreciate you you bringing that up. It's something that I was working with a, a therapist who is and and was a sex therapist and. I felt like every session it was me coming to her saying like, I feel this, but I'm so scared to say it. Mm -hmm. And her helping me get language for how to say that. And I still refer to, to so much of that and, and constantly need to 
go back to it because it can be really, really challenging. It definitely can. And we aren't taught how to do it. So part of talking about sex and getting better at it is just doing it and embracing the awkward. Yeah. Like a and shitty hopefully first even draft. laughing about it. Yeah, a shitty first draft. And I think that quote you shared is perfect. Like naming, I'm really nervous to say this because I think you're going to laugh at me or I think you're going to be upset is such a helpful way to bring vulnerability to the very top of the conversation, which is connecting. And hopefully if you're bumbling, trying to get something out of your mouth, then and it's about sex, then hopefully the two of you can laugh about it eventually, yeah. maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it's a really good way to take a temperature on the person that you're interacting with, you know, how they mm -hmm. deal with a vulnerable conversation and how, what their reaction is and, and how patient they are. And, you know, I'll, I'll share, I'll share this. I, I haven't thought about it in a long time, but when I was reading your quote, something that that therapist gave me, I think I was, I was really nervous of just kind of explaining how inexperienced I was mm -hmm. and to the point about gender and what we kept saying of like, it doesn't have to be such a big deal and using your, your pillars of play and possibility and pleasure. I, I think they apply in sex as well. Of mm -hmm. And the only way to use them is to try, you know? And, and I think the way that I've thought about sex as I've gotten older has been, you know, this way to experience vulnerability because it's messy and it's uncertain. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's also wonderful and euphoric and terrible and weird. You know, it's like all, it's everything, <laughs> just like life. All right? the things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so she gave me this line and, and I'll say it in case it's helpful to anyone else. And I'm curious what you think about it. But she was like, I was having trouble, you know, someone was asking me like what I wanted essentially. And I uh -huh. didn't know. And I was trying to like figure it out. And I felt embarrassed to say that basically. Mm. And so she gave me a way to say that that was really useful, which was saying like, we're a band, you know, and I'm going to let's just like play around in the garage and do a bunch of things and we'll figure out what works. Like that was kind of the, the oh, I love line that. she gave me. Yeah. And then with this particular partner that I was with for a long time, I, <laughs> we would always be like band practice, band practice. Like it <laughs> kind of became like a funny thing, which I really love. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that so much. And I think to just build on that, another way to answer that would be, Hey, I don't know. I feel embarrassed about that. Can you give me three options and I'll tell you which one? Mm, so or funny. let's do a yes, no, maybe list together. But how can you make it playful instead of embarrassing? And I will also say this as an aside, just because somebody has had a lot of sex does not mean they are good at it. Yeah, it's definitely something that it shame, you know, like the, the yeah. shame and being wherever you are on that spectrum of, you know, experience or lack of, of experience or somewhere in the middle, like that's all just conditioning and, and culture that is Absolutely. problematic and makes it more difficult for us. Yeah. But I love how your therapist framed that. That's great. Yeah. Really, really, really helpful. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. 
What would you say is your favorite part of your day right now or, or even of your life as a whole? As difficult as it is, I also really love sitting down to write, especially when I'm able to get in a flow with it. It feels really good. So I'm enjoying that process, even though it is also a challenging process. But I think the moments where I have a, a place that I'll go to write sometimes that it's kind of a, a bar cafe kind of place that's not super crowded and just sitting there drinking coffee and writing my book. It just feels like everything I dreamed of when I was younger, like at a little cafe, writing a book, drinking coffee. So that's been very fun. Oh, I'm really excited for your book and I'm so happy that it exists and I'm so happy that you exist. So oh, thank you. You've recommended a lot of great things in passing, but do you want to re recommend anything else? It can be, you know, all-time favorites or things that you just really love, book, movie, song, podcast, place, piece of advice, quote, any anything that it can be all of it or just anything that comes to mind. My number one top one, especially when it comes to sex, is Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. I think that book is brilliant and it makes sex and our brains and everything that keeps us from having great sex very accessible. And it is also very practical. So I love that one. Yes. I'm so glad you recommended that. My friend Juliana recently, like this summer, recommended that to me. I was talking to her, similar to what I was saying to my sex therapist from years ago, like a communication issue with sex. And she brought up that book so many times and I still haven't read it. So thank you for reminding me. Oh, you have to. It's so good. I think you're really, really going to like it. Definitely that one. I think another book that I'd recommend with... Okay. I'll recommend two more books. Yeah. I'm such a book person. The Worry Cure by Robert Leahy completely changed the way I personally and professionally viewed anxiety and worry. And it is such a practical book and it feels like he's in your head and he describes cycles and patterns that I was in as an anxious person that I didn't even know I was doing. And then the other one is Design Your Life by I think Bill Burnett. And there's a co-author that I can't see from this angle, but Bill Burnett is one of the authors. And it's all about taking human-centered design and applying it to your life, which is something I've been interested in human-centered design for a few years now. And I talk about it a lot in my book, but it's such a helpful frame of how to think about your life holistically and make choices quickly that change your life for the better and to thoughtfully assess your life in a what I think is a really fresh way. Maybe it's not that fresh to design people out there, but for me, it was a game changer. Those are great. Thank you. Anything else? Uh, did I did I squeeze you for all of your juice? Uh, <laughs> is there anything else that you wish that I would have asked something that you never get to talk about that you'd like to share? Well, I feel like you and I talk for hours, yes. um, but anything in particular, I think the last thing I want to say is just reiterating that gender freedom is not just for trans folks. 
this isn't a conversation that is just about trans and non-binary people. It's about all of us. It's about the society that we've created that is highly gendered and inequitable. And what are ways that we can collectively experience more freedom by critically looking at the ways that gender confines us and how we'd like to express our gender to the world. And by that, be more of our, our authentic self. And like I've said, I think people who are more of their authentic self are magical and however they choose to use that magic. But I want more of those people in the world. Mm, yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, I completely feel the same and also will be vulnerable too. of like, I, as a cis person, I feel behind in my education and my understanding and just, I care so much and I don't want to say the wrong thing and I can be a bit stumbly and it's my responsibility to educate myself and to, you know, un have an understanding because it's so important. And, and like you said, helps everyone because I want, I'm still working on existing as, you know, we all are, I guess we'll be more the most self-aware right before we die, right? We're all still developing our self-awareness, but being able to feel safe to exist as ourselves is is so important to me and and my work and and that's why I really just really love your work and find this so important and thank you again so so much for being here and sharing that. Well, thank you so much. And I will say to you and all the cis people out there who are really wanting to be supportive but scared of screwing up is you will screw up eventually. You did it today, but you you will. And one of my, shoot, what is her name? Her name is Erica Hines says this thing. She is a diversity and equity and inclusion facilitator. And she says, when you are doing this work, which is what we're doing, right? Diversity work, equity work, you have to be ready to stumble. You have to be ready to fumble. That's just part of it. And that doesn't mean that you're a bad person because you don't know something. You just learn it and it doesn't yeah. have to be so scary in the ally department either. Totally. And and feeling uncomfortable is part of it and feeling uncomfortable, much like sex, I guess it's a really good example, is vulnerable and having conversations that could feel uncomfortable. We've been conditioned to feel like they are uncomfortable, right? My friend Linnea has a line that's going to be better than the one I'm trying to struggle through and say, but, <laughs> but she says, talking about anti-racism specifically, but I think it's true across everything, like you were saying, inclusion and diversity, your discomfort as a beginner is not as important as human lives, you know, like being willing yep. to feel uncomfortable and mess up. And when you mess up, apologize or acknowledge like that was weird. I mess up, I feel embarrassed and move on and not make it about you. And exactly. Um, and I, I just, I, I, something I always go back to. So thank you. Of course. Well, let's end with letting out uh, a deep breath after this big conversation. So inhale, let it out. <sighs> hmm. Thank you so much. This was 
phenomenal. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to to know you and to have you on the podcast. It, it means so much. Thank you for taking so much time. The feeling is very mutual. That's my conversation with Ray McDaniel. Clearly, they are phenomenal. And I'm so happy that we had this conversation on the podcast and that you stuck around to the very end and listened to it. I highly recommend following Ray on social media and following everything that they do. And eventually, when the time comes, getting yourself a hard copy of their book, which sounds like we have a while until that's available. They're still in process with it. And hopefully they'll come back on the show and and talk about it more once it's out. And in the meantime, I think following them on social media would be the best way to keep in touch and follow me. I'm at Katie Dalebout as well as Let It Out. Let It Out, this podcast you're listening to has its own Instagram. It's Let It Out with three T's and I post about new episodes there. And if you want to get a short email from me, sometimes a long email from me with a long personal essay or the show notes to everything we talked about, if you want that emailed right to you, it's really easy to sign up for my newsletter. It's called the Let It Out Letter. And I would love to connect with you there as well. And we still have a discount on the Let It Out kit. So these are self-study online workshops that you can do at your own pace anytime. The code 22 still works for 22% off. We have self-study workshops around several different topics. I will link to a couple of them that I am highlighting this month in the show notes. And if you have any questions for me, anything at all, email me. I'm Katie at Let It Out with three T's or send me a message on Instagram and the emoji for this week's episode. Comment it on Ray's Instagram, comment it on Let It Out's Instagram and my Instagram on the recent photo to let us know you're listening all the way to the end. It's going to be the lemon because I'm looking at a lemon right now where I'm recording. If you're new, it's just this little secret code we do to let us know that you're still here at the very, very end. And again, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that Ray did the podcast and that you are here listening. And I would love to connect with you more. And I'll talk to you next week with a new episode. Bye.